0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in Amos chapter 4, so go there. I mentioned last week that part of what I enjoy so much about the book of Amos is that there is a tremendous amount of theology, some of it right on the surface, some of it real obvious, and some of it you have to think about the assumption behind the things that Amos is saying, and you can get a pretty good feel for what Amos thinks of God, what is God like, what is the personality of God that he is representing And we're going to look at that again tonight. We're going to see Amos' approach to trouble and trials, because that is really a very big topic of discussion and debate in the Christian church, even to this very day, where does trouble fit into the big economy of God? And certainly there are people who say, well, God has nothing to do with the trouble. You know, if there's trouble, trial, problems, that's the devil." And if things are going good, and everything's great, everything's going my way, and it's all sunshine and roses and bluebirds of happiness, well, then I'm being blessed by God. That's good stuff. So that's clearly God. And then when things go bad, well, that has to be the devil, or it's my fault, or it's the world, but it can't be God. Well, last week, of course, we saw Amos go through a series of cause and effect statements. If this, then that that concluded with the last half of verse 6 of chapter 3, where he said, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? So that's his sort of introductory statement to the topic. He sees God as being absolutely sovereign over all things, and it is because God, in his sovereignty, chose a particular people. He chose Israel and said, as we saw last week, you only have I known, out of all the people groups on the planet, you only have I chosen, you only have I had this relationship with, and therefore, I'm going to punish you. And there's no way to look at that and not see that Amos considered God to be absolutely in control, absolutely sovereign, because he chose a people group imposed his rules and law on that people group and now is punishing that people group for not doing what he said they had to do and so tonight we're going to expand on that because he's going to list a series of things that God himself says in the first person, didn't I do this and yet you didn't return to me, didn't I do this and you didn't return to me and every one of them is bad. Every one of them is God saying, and then I punished you. I gave you clean teeth, which is an interesting phrase. In other words, leanness, no food. There was no food between your teeth because I brought famine. I, I, you're, we're going to go through the litany of things that God says. I did these things to you, and you didn't return to me. <clears throat> so the underlying theology behind that is, what is the point and purpose of trouble? I've been saying this for a lot of years now, and when I finally understood this, it was such a huge relief to me. But if God is absolutely sovereign, then the suffering, the trials, the troubles that we encounter in this lifetime are purposeful. Everything that happens to us has purpose. If God is not sovereign, then suffering, trials, difficulty, problems in this life can in fact be pointless. They happened. God could have stopped them if they wanted. He had the power and the control to stop them. He just didn't. And that makes God arbitrary, and that makes God capricious, that God would allow his people to be hurt and be harmed and go through struggle and trial for no good reason. He just let it happen. But part of understanding The genuine sovereignty of God and the way that God is described in the Bible is coming to the recognition that everything that happens in this lifetime, everything that happens in this world and in his creation, all serves his larger purpose. And Amos is going to tell Israel here in chapter four tonight as we read it, he's going to tell them God brought all this trouble your way and the purpose for it. The reason for it was to drive you back to him, and it's going to culminate in chapter five in the language of the day of the Lord, which is really interesting and providential timing since we're talking about Matthew 24 stuff on Sunday morning. Next Wednesday, we'll be talking about the day of the Lord stuff. Because he sees that as the ultimate punishment of God against Israel for the purpose of bringing Israel back to himself. Now, how does that apply to you and me? Well, as I said last week, when God deals with Israel and punishes Israel, he is not doing it for the purpose of driving them away. He is not losing them. He is not permanently disbanding them he is not giving up on them he is correcting them the way a loving father corrects their children and that is precisely what the hebrews writer does right that whom the lord loves he chastens and scourges every son that he receives in fact the hebrews writer goes so far as to say that if you haven't been chastened you're not a son because God will correct you if he loves you. That was something that uh, my children at some point had to figure out and had to understand, was that when we would correct them, it wasn't because we hated them. In fact, I sat down and told my son one day. He's sitting here so I can talk about him. I said, you know, I would love it if when I came home from work, all I ever heard was, you know, your children are so wonderful, and you need to go in and give them a big hug and Tell them how dandy they are. I said, that's how I would like to end my day. I don't want to come home and punish you. I don't want to come home and be mad at you. But, you know, I get home and, well, you know, this is what they did and you got in. I was always the disciplinarian. I'm I'm the dad. Wait till your father gets home. So I had to go in and talk to the children. and, And I would explain to them, now, I'm not correcting you because I hate you. I'm correcting you because I love you. And if I don't correct you, you're going to grow up to be rebellious and spoiled. And I am delivering you probably from all kinds of trouble in life, including jail. And according to the Bible, when you correct a child, you deliver their soul from hell. And so you're teaching children that there is an authority above and beyond themselves. Because if you allow them to go through their whole life believing that they are the center of the universe and that anybody who uh, opposes them is an enemy and that they should always get their way all the time, then ultimately they're never going to understand the notion of a God who requires of them worship and a direct response. Get down on your face in front of me and recognize that I am so far above you and superior to you. They're never going to recognize that or understand that if you don't instruct them as they're growing and as they're being raised. And fortunately, my children reached the point where they realized two things. Number one, that I was willing to punish them. That meant that they were less likely to act up because Dad was willing to punish them. But secondly, they realized that the punishment was for their good. And so here is God speaking to the children of Israel The very same way, he's saying, I have corrected you, and I have corrected you, and I have corrected you, but you're so hard-hearted, you're so stiff-necked, you're so rebellious, that, that even all of my correction hasn't changed you. You still won't come back to me. So what's the purpose of the hardship? What's the purpose of the difficulty that he brought into their life? It was for the purpose of correcting them, driving them back to their God. How often have you heard me say that the trouble, the trials that God brings into our life are meant to drive us to our knees because we will pray much more fervently, we will pray with much more passion when we're in trouble than we will when we're happy and everything's great. When things are going good and it's all great and everything's wonderful, you're likely to tip your hat to God on the way by and say, thanks, it's all going good, I appreciate it. But let him bring some trouble into your life. You will be on your face in the dirt in front of him. And he knows that. He knows that's what it takes to bring you back because we're rebellious creatures. And that is the theology, again, that we're going to see here in chapter 4 of Amos, the theology of God correcting Through trouble, because trouble and trial in God's economy has purpose. Got that? Okay. Chapter 4, verse 1 is actually the beginning of Amos's third warning or third vision to Israel, the northern tribe. The first two chapters make up the first one. Then in chapter 3, you see this literary device that he uses the phrase, hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you. Chapter 4 starts the same way. Hear this word. So it's a series of individual prophecies that he is told to go and say to the various areas in the northern, among the northern tribesmen. And, of course, as we continue through the book, we're going to find that they just reject it. They reject it outright, and they reject him. They don't want to hear this kind of stuff, even though it turns out he's absolutely right. He's telling the truth completely. By the time we get to the end of chapter 4, God finally gets so frustrated and so fed up with Israel that he lowers the final threat, the ultimate threat that God can threaten, which is prepare to meet your God. Interesting phrase when it's coming from a God who's angry. Prepare to meet your God. I'm going to punish you. And then, as I said in chapter 5, that theme is going to carry over and become the day of the Lord. I think that's about it for introduction. Oh, one last thing. God is really sarcastic in this chapter. (laughs) Because there are women in Israel who apparently have cajoled their husbands, into doing their bidding, and part of their bidding is the continual oppression and suppression of the poor in Israel so that the women can lay on couches and have their drinks and have their life of leisure. There is an area in Israel, in the northern area, called Bashan. Bashan has lush pastures. You can read about it in Jeremiah 15. 50, verse 19, or Micah seven fourteen, Ezekiel 39, 18, even Psalm twenty two twelve, 12, all mention Bashan, and they all say the same thing about it, which is that it is lush pasture land, that's where the animals get the best grazing, and it's also used by God as a, as a promise someday for Israel, that God will bring them to Bashan, and they themselves will will rest comfortably and eat in Bashan. And so he starts right out in chapter 4 by making a reference to Bashan and the fatted cattle that are in Bashan, and he calls the women of Israel the cows of Bashan. (laughs) Very sarcastic of God and very politically incorrect. So much so that I couldn't get away with saying that. But it's what God says. So he's saying, you're, you're so overfed. You're so fatted at this point. Well, let's read it. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who were on the mountain of Samaria. So that's that northern kingdom area. Who oppressed the poor, who crushed the needy. Now we know we're not talking about cattle. We're talking about human beings now, and then you say to your husbands, now we know it's women. So it's the married women of the wealthy people in Israel. Now, the word that is translated husband in chapter 4, verse 1, is not the standard Hebrew word for husband. It's actually a word for lord or master, and it's being used ironically here because the men are not acting like lords or masters in their family they're under the thumb of their women who instruct them and tell them what to do. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. So go out there and crush the poor so that I can have more. And the husband, who's supposed to be the master, ends up going, okay, dear, and going and doing what his bovine wife wants. Verse 2, the Lord God has sworn, this is really interesting language, because we human beings, we swear by a great many things. And usually we swear by something greater than ourselves. Jesus had to deal with that when he was on the planet, saying, don't swear by the temple, it's not yours. Don't swear by heaven, that's God's throne room. But people swear by something greater than themselves. And the whole purpose of the swearing is to swear an oath, to say this is going to happen and I swear it's going to happen on the basis of this thing I am swearing on, which is solid or substantial. That's why even today people will say something like, well, I, I swear on my father's grave. You know, Well, that's not going to change. The grave is going to be there. That's a solid thing, so I swear by it. Okay, so now when God wants to swear and say this is definitely going to happen, this is absolutely what I've planned, I swear. What's he going to swear by? There's nothing bigger than him. So we read, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness. We have very frequently here talked about the fact that God's primary attribute is his holiness. Despite the fact that people think that God's primary attribute is love, You certainly can't see that from what we're about to read in this chapter. (laughs) His primary attribute is his holiness, and he swears by his holiness. This is why he has angels around his head saying that he is holy, holy, holy. That is the attribute that he wants demonstrated and, and repeated over and over in the heavenlies, that he is a holy God. So when it comes time for him to swear and make an oath and say this is definitely going to happen, he has to swear by himself, but he swears by his own holiness because it is substantial and unchanging. So he can use that as the surety of what he says. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. This is what he says. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. Okay, that one, I had to go back and do a little digging to understand what that was about. Read the next verse and then we'll put it all together because the next verse says, you will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her. He's still talking to the wives there in the northern tribes and you will be cast a harmon declares the Lord. So here's what happened. When Assyria came and attacked the cities in the north, most of them were walled cities. And so if you were going to leave the city, you couldn't really all line up and walk in a straight line toward whatever was in front of you. You would go to the gate. You would go to the door. You would go to the place where you could get through the wall. But because the walls were constantly being breached by the Assyrian armies and the walls were being knocked down, they were taken out of the city in single file, walking straight forward through the breaches in the wall. They weren't going out through the gates or through the doors. They were going out through the breaches and they were being hooked together, tied together in long ropes. So imagine, I mean, if you've conquered a large people group or you've conquered a city and you're going to take servants and slaves out of the city, you're going to tie them together and their hands would be tied together and then a rope through all their hands so that they were all hooked to the rope and they would be taken out of the city in single file. And that's what God said. But then he adds this. You'll be taken out with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks if anybody fell behind or didn't walk or rebelled against it. The soldiers used large hooks to grab them, pull them along, or spears to goad them into continual walking. And God compared that to the technique that fishermen use, that they would go out and use hooks, sometimes to hook meat, sometimes to hook fish. Or think Tom Hanks in that movie where he was on an island and you saw him standing there with a spear and he would spear a fish. This is the same imagery, the same idea, the same picture, where God said, you're going to go out through the walls, walking in single file, straight out, not using the gate or the doors, and you're going to go out bound, hooked, with meat hooks and fish hooks until you're out of the city. And sure enough, historically, that's what happened. So... God has sworn it in his holiness, and then, of course, it did occur. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. And you will go out through the breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to harmon. declares the Lord. One commentator points out that that harmon, since there aren't... Definite vowels in many of these uh, old Hebrew words, that might be Hermon. If it is Hermon, if it is Mount Hermon, if that's the way north that they went to go into Assyria, that would take them, ironically, right by the pastures of Bashan, which would be just God's irony. Enter Bethel and transgress. Bethel, of course, is the place in the north which was the chief place of the worship, it's where the king would go to worship, at Bethel. So God is now going to mock Bethel. And in Gilgal, multiply your transgressions. Gilgal, of course, is the place where when Israel came across the Jordan River after their 40 years in the wilderness, that is the place where they set up a monument. And it is a place where people would go and, and worship. So God has picked these two primary places among the northern tribes where worship takes place, and now he encourages that worship in a very ironic way and says, enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. Now that might be a reference to the fact that it was custom- that during the three feasts of the year when every Israelite who could travel had to come to Jerusalem, that typically on the third day they would collect the tithes. Everybody would bring their tents. And so that's probably a reference to that. Do your sacrifices, do your tithes, which all belong to God. But he says, but take them to Gilgal, take them to Bethel, and just go multiply your sin. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings and make them known. So, kind of like Jesus berating the uh, Pharisees for the fact that whenever they would give a gift in the temple, they would blow a trumpet, make sure everybody knew about it. And Jesus said, They have their reward. They've been seen by men, that's what they wanted. God says, go ahead, do all your stuff, and then make a big to-do of it. Make a big show. Make sure people know that you're bringing your offerings, you're bringing your free will offerings. He's just mocking them endlessly. And proclaim free will offerings and make them known, for so you love to do, you sons of Israel. That's what you love to do. You don't love to worship me. You don't love to come to Jerusalem where you're supposed to. You don't come and bring the proper sacrifices to me. You love to go put on a show with your foreign gods. So just go do it. Verse 6. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Okay, so famine came on them. God takes responsibility for the famine. God says, the reason you don't have any crumbs in your teeth, the reason your teeth are clean is because I did that. The reason you don't have any bread or your lack of bread in all your places, that's me. I did that. Now, why did he do it? And yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So God brought about this punishment for a specific purpose to bring them back to him. Yet they, in their hard-heartedness, continue to go and pray and worship and bring offerings to their foreign gods and to their idols. And so God is saying, go on, go do that. Just go. If that's what you want, go do it. Furthermore, verse 7, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until the harvest. This is how we brought about the famine. You need rain all the way up into the harvest. Otherwise, all of your crops in the field are going to wither and die. And the God who's in charge of rain, snow, thunder, and lightning, and the change of seasons, and the moon and the stars in their course, that God said, I withheld rain from you. And then it's evidence that it was him who did it on purpose in the withholding. Look at what he says. And furthermore, verse 7, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. And then I would send rain on one city, and on another city, I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the part not rained on would dry up. This is God saying, I'm in charge of all of that, all the details. If somebody had food, I gave them food. If somebody was hungry, I made them hungry. He picks and chooses like he's done throughout the entire history. Exactly. Picking, choosing. And doing it with purpose. That's my point. If you miss the purpose part, you miss the whole point of this chapter. It's God saying, bad stuff is happening to you. And you think that it's just random. I'm telling you, I'm doing these things to you. And my purpose is to make you recognize your guilt and your need of me. What is the purpose of The tribulation, as we read about it on Sunday, what is the point of the things that God is taking Israel through? We've read it. We know it. It's for their purification. It's to separate the silver from the dross. It's to make them pure and make them recognize their need of God and specifically their need of a savior. So I withheld the rain from you. And then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the other part not rained on, and it would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. And yet you would not return to me. You would not recognize that I am doing this to you because of your sin, and because of your rebellion. And by the way, what does this really tell us about the the depth of sin of human beings? You know, we, quote-unquote, Calvinists, we believe in what the Reformers called total depravity, meaning not that we're as bad as we could be, but that the whole of us, the completeness of us as people are depraved from the top of our head to the sole of our foot, that we're sinful throughout. And here God is not only taking responsibility for the hardship that these people are going through, he's telling them, look, I'm the one who's causing the hardship you're going through. And I'm going to make it worse, unless you listen to me. And what do they do? Well, they end up in captivity. They end up in Assyria because they will not... Now, big theological principle again, you would think that any rational people group having heard this would say, oh, that's why this is happening. Oh, thank you, Amos. We were a little confused. We better get right right away because I'm hungry and we could use some rain and let's let's correct this right away. Why don't they do that? Why don't they turn back to God? Why don't they repent? Why don't they do better? The only answer is, well, they can't. If they would, they could. Not only do they have ample incentive, they're hungry. Their enemies are coming to get them. God has sworn that there's going to be breaches in their walls, and the women are being taken out, roped and hooked, yet for all that with God speaking to them through a prophet and saying, I'm going to do all this and I'm the cause of this and this is all for your correction, they still won't turn. And we can't conclude anything other than they're not turning because they can't turn. Rational people would. But they're not rational. They're sinful. They're depraved and sin is irrational because you're talking about a righteous, holy God who swears by his own holiness. So then rationality would be, get on your face in front of that God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one who bought you and redeemed you and brought you out of Egypt and brought you to this land of milk and honey. And he's the one that is defending you from all your enemies and even defending you from wild animals and has given you a lineage of kings after his own heart that's going to culminate in his own son coming to the planet. Get on your face in front of him. And they just don't. That's so irrational. But sin is irrational. We're crazy. That's our problem. We're just born crazy. And then it gets worse. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse 9. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew. Okay, this is real sovereign. Anybody got mildew growing in their bathroom? I have to regularly clean the shower. Get in there with some spray and a scrub brush and get the mildew out. But it never occurred to me. I never stopped and thought, oh, you know, God and his grand sovereignty put mildew in my shower. And yet... Even when God is laying out the rules and the laws to Israel, there are mildew rules. There are mildew laws. I think the King James calls it a blast. And if God brings mildew into an area, he takes responsibility for it. And then he tells them what to do in order to get rid of it and how they have to clean and get it out of their camp and how they have to do all that. Because if God is, in fact, as sovereign as we believe he is, then yes. He's in charge of mildew, because he's in charge of everything. But wait, it's not just mildew. It's also caterpillars. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees. In other words, God, who is in control of insects and caterpillars, made sure that the caterpillars happened to converge on the gardens that belonged to Israel to make sure they didn't have food. How sovereign is that? And you don't get to argue with it because it's God who said it. He said, I made sure and put caterpillars in your gardens. Which means if we're out there spraying our tomato plants and doing everything we can to keep the bugs off it, If we uh, are capable of growing a garden anytime, anywhere, it's still just God's goodness, God's grace. Because the water you're using to water your plant is God's water, and the ground you're growing it in is God's ground. It's still all his, and if he wants you to go hungry, he'll make sure that nothing grows in your garden. He'll get rid of your job. He'll drive up your bills. He'll make sure your car doesn't work. He will do everything necessary to drive you to the point where you realize you got nothing but him. He's done it before. He'll do it again. What's the right solution? Get on your face in front of him. Anyway, the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees. And yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you, says verse 10, after the manner of Egypt. Okay, now they remember the deliverance from Egypt. Part of the process of that deliverance was the multiple plagues that God brought against the Egyptians, 10 of them all together that culminated in the death of all the firstborn. And some of those, like making it dark in all of Egypt... God made sure that there was light in Goshen where the Israelites were. Some of the plagues, the fleas and the lice, God absolutely in sovereign control made sure that the fleas, the lice, that kind of thing, or the frogs, ended up right where he wanted them. they come up out of the Nile and would infest the households of the Egyptians. And the Israelites didn't have that problem. The same way he said here, I'm in control of one city getting rain and another city not. I'll bring plagues on you the same way I did in Egypt. But here's the particular plague he brought against them. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. Notice that language. Because God did not come down with a sword and slay anybody. But he took responsibility for the fact that he brought enemy armies against Israel and made sure that they lost those battles so that their young men, the soldiers, the next generation of strong young men, were destroyed. And God said, I did that. Are you getting some sense of the scope here? I'm in charge of rain. I'm in charge of mildew. I'm in charge of caterpillars. I'm in charge of life and death. I'm in charge of enemy armies. One of the promises he made to Israel when he brought them into the land of milk and honey was that he would give them rest roundabout from all their enemies because he's in charge because the heart of the king is in God's hands and like the rivers of water, he steers it wherever he wants it to go and he can do that with foreign kings like Cyrus, he can do that with local kings like David, he's in absolute charge so he takes responsibility for everything that happens whether it's warfare and death or whether it's mildew. It's all him. And he says so. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. So many dead bodies, you couldn't even get them all buried. And in your camp, the place where Israel was encamped when they were attacked, he said, I made it stink from all the bloodshed. Now, that's gruesome. If you saw that in a movie, you'd look away. You would say, this is just harsh. This is gruesome. And God says, I did all that. Does your concept of God, does your theology allow God to be like this? Because if it doesn't, then you have a truncated theology, a sub-biblical theology you don't understand yet the God of the Bible. If you think the God of the Bible is always love and only love and that he only brings about good all the time, then you still don't know God. And by the way, you won't genuinely reverence and respect and fear him till you know he's like this. When you know that he's willing to punish and to judge and bring about trouble and kill. When you know that about him, then you can begin to understand how incredible it is that he is good to you, that he's kind to you, that he's gracious to you. And you'll be inspired to go back to him regularly and say, thank you. Thank you. You are under no obligation to be good to me and you're perfectly willing and perfectly capable to act like this. But in my life, you didn't. That makes you really fortunate, really blessed. So, You have to understand everything that God says about himself, how he represents himself, how he demonstrates himself to be in order to have a real genuine, theologically consistent approach to God. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. And yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. And yet you have not returned to me. Here Israel would say, but we're the elect, we're the chosen, we're the, you said, you God, you said that we're the only people you've known. Out of all the people on the planet, you've only known us. So you love us, right? We're beloved by you. And he just compared them to Sodom and Gomorrah, who any Israelite would point at and say, those were the bad ones, okay? Fire and brimstone came down, destroyed those people. And God said, I overthrew you like Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, you have not returned to me. Therefore, verse 12, he said all that to say this, therefore, Thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I shall do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel, the ultimate punishment, the mildew stuff, the caterpillar stuff, the dead children, all that stuff, going through the wall, going into captivity, all of that, that's not as bad as what I'm about to do. And what I'm about to do is come after you personally. Prepare to meet your God. It is a a frightening, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he says, that's what I'm going to do to you, Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man, What are his thoughts? He who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. He's using that combination of words that is the highest form of God. I am the creator God. I am the sovereign God. I am the one who makes the wind. It's real funny that human beings don't even think about that. We just think of wind as part of nature, quote-unquote. Or mountains. Why are there mountains and valleys? God says, I did that. That's my architecture. I created all that. But people think, well, that was just years and years of seismic activity and wind and erosion. And God says, me. This is all me. I did all this. Everything you see, everything you are, everything you have, everything you experience, everything that is in every facet of your life, me. That's all me. I'm all around you. I'm in control of all of it. And yet... You won't listen to me. That's insanity. But it's how human beings are. And so he says, behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts. He's saying, I speak to you. Through my prophets, I tell you what I'm going to do. That's what Amos had already said, that God, through the prophets, is going to speak. I'm going to tell you what I am planning and why I'm doing it. That's even more amazing. God not only says, I'm going to take you out of your land and I'm going to knock down your walls and I'm going to take you into Assyria, but he also says, why? I'm going to do it because you haven't returned to me and you haven't kept my Sabbaths and you are worshiping foreign gods. This is the God who communicates. This is the God who actually tells human beings. Think for just a moment of the condescension of God that he would deign to speak to sinful human beings. Here, I'll give you some idea of what I'm talking about. Do you think there's any chance that uh, Obama would speak to me? Right? I'm going to put a call into the White House. Tell him it's Jim. Salvationbygrace.org. Tell him to check it out. Tell him it's me calling. Is he going to take my call? No. Mm-mm. No, of course not. And he's just another sinful human being. And yet he has enough power, he has enough authority to be able to say, no, I won't talk to that person. Nope. I won't talk to any Republicans either. I'm just just not going to... Okay, that was a little political humor there. I'm just... Okay, that's a human. Think about it. God is under no requirement to talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime. He's fully complete and sufficient within himself. He could, with no explanation whatsoever, go about his business and do whatever he's pleased to do and not tell anybody. He could wipe out all mankind and not explain why. He can just do it. He has that power and he has that authority. And yet the condescension of God that he wants to communicate with people and that he chooses, elects, draws particular people to himself and then introduces himself, puts his spirit inside them and lets them have a comprehension of him... And that we would somehow turn that into self-aggrandizement? That we would walk around saying, well, I'm the really spiritual one. (laughs) I'm the important one. I'm the good one. No. The very fact that you know God is an act of just astounding grace where he bowed very, very low in order to have a relationship with you. You did not reach up very, very high and get to him. He came down a long, long distance and talked to you. Mm -hmm. And I'm stressing that point because God brought it up. As one of the things that he wanted them to know about him is that he is the God who not only forms mountains and creates wind, but he tells man what his thoughts are. So if God took the time to say, look, this is a characteristic of mine that I am pointing out to you, You, Israel, I have given you my rules, my laws. I've sent you my prophets. I have told you what my thinking is. I have told you what my mind and heart is. You know these things. I've given you kings after my own heart. So you have a responsibility to me. Can you see how genuinely heinous, how really ridiculous their rebellion then is? Because they've had access to God that nobody else has ever had. And yet they rebel. So he says, this is who I am. I form the mountains. I create the wind. I declare to man, what are his thoughts? What are my thoughts? And I make the dawn into darkness. I tread on the high places of the earth. And the Lord God of hosts is my name. In the next chapter, he's going to up the ante. And he's going to talk about a time of trouble coming that he calls the day of the Lord. So between our Sunday morning messages and our Wednesday night messages, they just happen to converge rather providentially (laughs) in a place where we're going to have to talk about the language of the day of the Lord in the weeks to come. Get all that? So that was chapter four. Next week, chapter five.